and welcome to Top Hole, the podcast about Eleanor and Brent Dyer, the chalet school and anything vaguely connected to them. I'm Deborah Lofus and I'm a fan. The usual provisos apply with respect to pronunciation, spoilers and bonkersness. Please refer to episode zero. This week we're going to the Tyrol to look at the chalet school and the Lintons. The Chalet School in the Lintons is such an eventful chalet school book that when Armada published it, they split it into two, presumably considering that the first half of the term provided excitement enough for young readers. So for several years, so far as I was concerned, the story ended with the chapter titled The Baby's Name Party. Then I acquired a copy of A Rebel at the Chalet School and found that the second half of the term, like the first, was chock full of incidents which are regularly referenced later in the series. Many readers have a particular affection for the chalet school book set in the Tyrol, and particularly the four terms in which Joey is head girl. Certainly when I started to replace my armadas with hardbacks, these were the ones I sought first. And of those four terms, this one is, I think, the best. Jo's first term as head girl is overshadowed by her worry about the robin, her last term is overshadowed by the horrible new matron, and Exploits contains too many EBD-isms to take the top spot. Lindens was published in 1934, sandwiched in chalet school publishing history between Exploits and New House. It also came out in the same year as Carnation of the Upper Fourth and the year before Elizabeth the Gallant, both of which presumably used up EBD's bonkersness quota for the year, giving us in Lindens what is, for all its eventfulness, a fairly normal school story. Two sisters, one well-behaved, one not, joining a boarding school is hardly an original premise, but Lindens delivers a great deal more than this. The various covers capture several of the key scenes in the book. The original Nina K. Brisley cover shows Joe and Joyce at the end of their heart-to-heart, with mountains in the background. It's one of my favourite Nina K. Brisley covers, because both girls look exactly right and it's quite clearly placed in the Tyrol. The second hardback cover is much more generic, showing two girls, presumably Gillian and Joyce, on a train, passing by mountains. This could have been the cover for any one of a number of chalet school books. But the third hardback cover, the one in my own collection, shows the midnight feast, with atmospheric lighting, girls huddled in dressing gowns, and superb detail. The picture shows quite clearly a tin of sardines about to be served on a rich fruitcake. The original second-style Armada paperback shows schoolgirls enjoying the staff presentation of Mrs Jarley's waxworks. The back cover blurb pretends to quote from the text, but presents this scene as some sort of hideous mystery. But it was the huge woman in black who held their attention most strongly. Who was she? And what was her connection with all these famous faces of the past? Dun, dun, dun! When Armada first published the second half of the story as Rebel, again in the second style, they put the ragging of Miss Norman on the cover. But Gwyn Jones's third style covers show Thecla and Joyce behind the curtain for Rebel, now retitled A Rebel in the Chalet School. And this time Armada chose The Midnight Feast for the cover of Linton's. The girls seem to be having much more fun in this picture. There is no sign of the sardines or fruitcake, and they are clearly not as cold. The final Armada paperback cover for Linton's by Piers Sanford shows girls wearing what appears to be 1930s uniform, failing to enjoy a garlic and apple pie. He used the curtain scene again for Rebel, now back to being a rebel at the chalet school, and his depiction accurately uses the description of Joyce looking very small and young, although I wouldn't describe her as particularly pretty. So between them, the various covers show... A crucial conversation between Joey and Joyce, the arrival of the Lintons, the Midnight Feast, Mrs Jarley's Waxworks, the ragging of Miss Norman, the differently flavoured apple pies, and the incident which leads to Thecla's expulsion. 
not depicted on any book covers, we also have the fairy tale sale and the suppression of Bill, Sybil's somewhat unexpected appearance and a crisis at the sanatorium. And this is an important term not only because of its eventfulness, but also because of its groundwork for the future, referencing both the new house arrangements of the next book and the change of plans for Joe's future. She will no longer be going to Belsonia as Elisa Vita's lady-in-waiting when she leaves school, but now plans to stay with Madge and write books. Within the school, this book sees the introduction of domestic economy classes for everyone from the third form upwards. Later, when the school is bigger and its pupils have exam syllabuses to complete, classes last an afternoon or a morning, but at this stage each form spends an entire day learning these housewifely arts. Classes include cooking mitagessen for the entire school, which numbers 107 plus staff, so this is a pretty big ask for 14 girls, and one wonders what Karen and her acolytes do with the spare time they now have on cooking days. Cookery provides us with an entire chapter in Linton's as we learn alongside the lower fifth how to make a rechauffe, well, sort of, EBD doesn't actually tell us all of the ingredients, and how to make apple pies. Half the apple pies, of course, end up favoured with garlic cloves rather than spice cloves. I do find it somewhat surprising that both Cornelia made this mistake and none of her classmates noticed it. They comment only on the oniony smell, explained by the rechauffe, and the size of the cloves, explained by the likelihood that they shrink during the cooking but garlic cloves look nothing like spice cloves and surely at least one of these girls will have made a pomander by sticking spice cloves into an orange even if they've never cooked with them well apparently not this particular cooking disaster is the first of several throughout the chalet school's history domestic science having plenty of comic potential and it starts in the chalet school in the lintons the staff evening mrs jarley and the waxworks is not only talked about for years but also repeated a few years later as a child, I had no idea who Mrs Jarley was, but Marie's comment that the chalet girls had read about her in literature reassured me that I would probably find out about her when I was older. I did not, because Mrs Jarley is a character in Charles Dickens's The Old Curiosity Shop, and I do not read Charles Dickens. I don't think EBD expected all her readers to have read The Old Curiosity Shop, though, because Mrs Jarley and her waxworks had a life of its own as a show beyond the original book. The character of Mrs Jarley was based on Madame Tussaud, although in the old curiosity shop, Mrs Jarley's waxworks are at Warwick, not Baker Street. The main characters work there for only a short time, but Dickens, as he so often did, captured people's imaginations with his description. Amateur and professional shows based on Mrs Jarley's waxworks quickly became popular in both the UK and America. In 1873, over 30 years after the publication of The Old Curiosity Shop, George Bradford Bartlett, an associate of Louisa M. Olcott, published Mrs Jarley's far-famed collection of waxworks, which expanded on Dickens's description and has itself been described as essentially a guidebook for staging amateur performance with animated pantomimes, the waxworks in this book being fitted with clockwork mechanisms so that they could make movements. So the Chalet School staff were not the first by any means to put on a version of Mrs Jarley, and it's possible that readers were more familiar with the show than with the original Dickens reference. Mrs Jarley shows are still being put on. A quick Google shows there was one in Lostwithiel in November 2023, with characters drawn from Cornish history and mythology. The Chalet School version sticks to well-known historical figures, but relates them to characters and incidents within the school, and ends up with a song referring to multiple incidents from previous books. It's one of the few chalet school shows which I find genuinely entertaining to read about, and within the chalet verse it sets an impossibly high bar for future staff evenings. Sybil Russell makes her first appearance in this book, although she is asleep all the time and doesn't even have a name to start off with, her distinguishing feature being her red hair. 
Sybil has a long and somewhat complicated chalet school history, from kidnap victim to prefect, and turns into one of EBD's more interesting characters. But at this stage, her main role is to be the focus of the baby naming party held at De Rosen in half term. The names suggested by the various characters are quite brilliant and entirely reflective of the sorts of names teenage girls might choose, and as a bonus, we also find out Cornelia's full name. Most importantly of all, this book introduces us to Gillian Linton, who subsequently becomes head girl, her tenure not, alas, documented in a book by EBD, and then part of the Russell household before she returns to the school as a mistress. She is a main cast member for over a decade, with crucial roles as the unintentional cause of the split between Betty Wynne Davis and Elizabeth Arnett, and the romantic lead in the subplot of Three Go, although she becomes engaged to a portrait painter rather than a doctor, the generally accepted top prize for old girls. But what marks out Gillian from the start is that she is one of the nicest, most sensible girls ever to cross the chalet school's threshold. There are not many new chalet school girls who merit the description nice and sensible. To be fair, most new girls join as middles, who are well known for being little idiots, and plenty of new girls are described as colourless. But of those who join the chalet school over the age of 15, I can't think of any, except perhaps the inaugural prefects, who don't have some flaw or other that the chalet school needs to iron out so that they can become proper chalet school girls. Gillian is the exception. She fits right in immediately, needing only a single gentle conversation with Madge to sort out her propensity to worry. Her flaw is, in fact, her sister Joyce. Joyce is lazy, pretty and defiant, certainly capable of leading girls, but not, at this stage at least, of leading them in the approved chalet manner. By the end of the book, she has reformed, coming within a whisker of expulsion, but although her school days then continue without major incident, the reform subsequently seems to have been superficial. Joyce marries and has children, but continues to keep Gillian at her beck and call, without allowing Gillian to be properly welcome in her family. So Joyce never completely loses the self-centeredness which dominates her personality in Linton's. EBD usually attributes such behaviour to poor parenting, and although in this case Mrs Linton parented the nice and sensible Gillian as well, EBD is clear that both Mrs Linton and Gillian have babied Joyce and so spoiled her. And perhaps not just Mrs Linton and Gillian. Joyce is described as having been the prettiest girl in her high school. She is most put out to meet Marie von Eschenau at the chalet school, and it's likely that many of the girls around her fed her conceit and added to the spoiling. This doesn't happen to the same degree once she's at the chalet school, where her followers are lesser characters, presumably because all the strong characters, Evie, Marjorie and co, can see past the prettiness and aren't captivated by her. Joyce really does chalk up a considerable grime sheet in her first few weeks. She is caught, along with Thecla and Kitty, passing notes in prep. She organises a midnight feast, which results in severe vomiting for two of the party, including Joyce herself, and nightmares for Thecla. She organises the systematic ragging of Miss Norman, leading a small class being coached in French in alternative activities such as loud singing, pretending not to hear, and finally dressing up and behaving like savages. After this, Mademoiselle Lepatra tells her that one more step out of line and Joyce will be expelled. But even this isn't enough to make Joyce turn over a new leaf. It takes Joey Bettany to talk Joyce into reforming her ways. Joey does a cracking job as head girl in this book, from her conversation with Mademoiselle about which dormitories to place the Lintons in, right through to her conversation with Mrs Linton, explaining the truth of the rumour she has heard, a conversation which, although it occurs outside term time, makes excellent use of Joe's authoritative head girl tones. 
Between times, Joe manages the prefect's duties, comforts Marie about Thecla's behaviour, pronounces judgement on those passing notes, listens to Gillian's plea for help with Joyce, brings Joyce round to reform and takes a leading role in organising the fairy tale sale. We also see, in this book, why Frida is second prefect. Her contributions in prefect meetings are sensible and pertinent. She is quick to smooth things over with Simone when Gillian is seeking Joe's help and she displays calm authority with Thecla. There are nine prefects in Linton's. EBD tells us more than once, presumably because in exploits she said there were eight and then named nine, but it's Joe and Frida who do the heavy lifting, with Anne Seymour, a sixth former but not a prefect, clearly lining up to be the next head girl. But that's another story. Generally, I would say, EBD preferred individual girls to complete their reform within a single book, as Joyce does. But she doesn't always take this approach, particularly when the problems with the girl are deep-rooted, and in Linton's we have Thecla. Thecla von Stift, a Prussian, arrived at the school the previous term as a complete snob, unwilling to associate with any girl who was not of high birth, an attitude which caused considerable problems throughout exploits. But by the end of the term she appeared to be coming round, even having a part in the Christmas play. Clearly her Christmas holiday, however, back at home with a family which included an older brother who had imbibed a great deal of the spirit of young Germany, did her no good. She is one of the first girls Joyce notices, greeted courteously but briefly by the other girls, holding herself stiffly erect and sitting apart. But Thecla does not appear to be looking for new friends. Mrs Linton is apparently fairly well off, but Joyce is not by any stretch of high birth, and E.B. doesn't show us how the two of them became involved with each other. But clearly they do, because they are caught passing notes in preparation, and Thecla takes part in both the midnight feast and the ragging of Miss Norman, although she refuses to attend the final lesson. And then Thecla sees Joyce going for a walk with Joey Bettany and apparently concocts a plot. A plot is how EBD describes it, but really Thecla just thinks on the hoof. She doesn't work anything out beforehand. Although perhaps this is what EBD thought a plot was. It's certainly the way she created the plots of her books. Anyway, I didn't understand any of this when I first read Linton's. I couldn't work out what Thecla's plot was, and I couldn't work out why she was being expelled. When Thecla says, you cannot do this, for just that one little fault, you cannot do this thing, I was totally with Thecla. This may be because EBD is strangely oblique about the whole thing, and never properly explains what is going on. I can see it now. Thecla wakes Joyce and takes her out of the dormitory and behind a curtain to tell Joyce to stop being friends with Joe Bettany. Joyce refuses, loudly, and they are caught, initially by Cornelia, subsequently by Miss Wilson. Thecla realises that if she can get everyone to believe that Joyce left her dormitory of her own accord, then Joyce will be in terrible trouble for breaking rules and in all probability expelled. So, during the subsequent investigation, Thecla lies, saying that she was woken by a noise in the corridor, came out to see what was going on and found Joyce. Thecla's lies unravel thanks to some sterling investigative work by Miss Wilson, who calls in Thecla's insomniac dormitory prefect to confirm that there were no noises in the night which might have woken Thecla and caused her to leave the dormitory. And once you realise that the it, the thing which Thecla did, was lying, it's then possible to work out the two questions, and two only, which Mademoiselle puts to Thecla. They are, why did you lie and are you sorry? and suddenly Thecla's venomous reply and the decision to expel her make sense. There is only one other expulsion in the chalet school's history, although St Scholastica's has already crossed that line in rivals, Annis Lovell seeks expulsion and Theodora arrives having been expelled from her previous schools. It's the heaviest punishment a headmistress can inflict, a rejection, an othering, you do not belong in our community. 
Fekla herself recognises this. Her pride is offended and then destroyed by Mademoiselle's words to her. EBD says that Thecla subsequently writes to Mademoiselle begging pardon, and this is one of those details that EBD doesn't forget, referring to it in later books more than once. Within the school, though, the instruction is to forget Thecla and get on with the sale of work. This particular sale, the fairy tale sale, is referenced more times than I can count in subsequent books. If readers were asked to list the different sales, I'm pretty sure this one would be at the top. The saints are part of this sale, as well as the annex, so it is a particularly busy one. During the preparations, Simone nearly slays Mademoiselle Lachenay with a hammer and Joe manages to fall off a ladder onto Miss Wilson, who demonstrates her health and robustness by not requiring any medical attention after this incident. I'm fairly sure that if a 17-year-old girl fell on top of me from a height, I'd require hospitalisation at the very least, but Miss Wilson sits quietly for a bit sipping water and then appears to suffer no ill effects. The sale is opened by Frieda's uncle, the bishop, and proceedings are chaired by Baron von Zuvertheimer, already earmarked as Marie's future love interest. There is quite a bit of business involved before the sale itself can get going. Jem presents a report on the free wards at the Sam. The bishop is presented with his needlepoint nib fountain pen, because you can't give a man flowers, and the two headmistresses, not being men, are presented with bouquets. Even then the opening ceremony is not over, as there are votes of thanks. That's at least 15 minutes of formalities for everyone to get through before any selling or entertainment can get underway. But once it does, there's a lot to make it memorable. This is the sale in which Ilonka parcels up the bishop's purchases and puts them in a bag which had previously contained fish, although we only find this out about the bag many years later. It's the sale at which Gillian is Snowdrop, not Snow White, even though there are seven dwarves in attendance, and Joe her prince. Biddy O'Ryan performs an Irish jig and the stage collapses during the final dance number. There is clock golf for the men who, unless they are bishops, clearly have no interest in making purchases. And in the salon next to the conservatory, who knew that the Chalice School had a salon and a conservatory? The saints have set up a magic cave with a game apparently inspired by Charlotte Young's The Three Brides. I haven't read this book, but I do have an elderly book of party games which describes the game the saints have set up. It involves a blindfold, a whistle, a string and a prize, and appears to be more entertaining to watch than it is to participate in, but at least the participants end up with a prize. After the sale comes the totting up, and this has been the most successful sale to date, raising three times the previous record. But before the girls can give three cheers, celebrations come to a dramatic end as Dr Jem arrives to summon Gillian and Joyce to the Sonalp to say goodbye to their mother. Mothers are a bit of a theme in the chalet school in the Lintons. The book opens with Mrs Linton in conversation with her doctor and it is entirely because of her health needs that the family leaves their London suburb for Austria and Gillian and Joyce join the chalet school. EPD had herself only recently uprooted from South Shields to Hereford, although in her case this was probably for her stepfather's health rather than her mother's, and perhaps this was in her mind when she wrote Linton's. Gillian and Joyce's lives are completely changed, both in the short and long term, because of their mother's needs. The book starts and finishes with the focus on Gillian and Joyce's mother, and she is not the only one. Madge, of course, becomes a mother again with the arrival of Sybil some two months before her due date. Joey was completely unaware that Madge was even expecting, but it was probably less of a surprise to keen readers, who will have noticed that Madge was wearing a shawl when she first greeted the Lintons. Wearing a shawl is generally an indicator of pregnancy in the chalet school world. Madge's housekeeper, Marie, has recently become a mother, Frida's sister, Bernhilda, one of the first chalet school prefects, becomes a mother in this book, giving birth to a son. 
There is also some discussion about Madge's role as proxy mother to Joey and a conversation in which Joey declares she will be a charming maiden aunt rather than a mother. Oh, the irony, given that Joe ends the series with 11 children, multiple wards and adoptees and having acted in a mothering role to several more girls. But Mrs Linton plays a key role in driving the plot of this book. It's her illness which prompts her daughter's enrolment at the school. It's the potential positive impact on her health which persuades Joyce to agree to mend her ways. It's her relapse which provides the crisis and resolution of the story, linking events back to Thecla and her plot. The book is called The Chalet School and the Lintons because it's about the relationship of the school with all three of them, not just Gillian and Joyce. You have been listening to Top Hole, written, researched and presented by Deborah Lofus, production and music by Kit Lofus. You can email us at topholepodcast at gmail.com and find us on Facebook. Next time we'll be attempting to rank all the Chalet School head girls, assuming we get our prep finished on time. Top Hole is a Lofus Towers production. <laughs>